This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You know, you can't tell a story that you don't want to tell. So the act of trying to tell a story introduces you to what matters to you. It teaches you something that you needed to know. Mm-hmm. Like it allows you to take ownership of your life. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Are you read it? Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, what's in your junk drawer? Everyone's got one. Maybe you toss your bills in it. Loose change. A pack of gum. But when you're an artist, your junk drawer is quite a bit different. It's full of dead dreams and killed darlings that went in there because they didn't quite work. But you wrote them for a reason. Well, our guest today, Alex, on this very show. What is your podcast called again? I can't remember. It's called Bookable. 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 Anyway, our guest recently emptied out his junk drawer. To critical acclaim. Ready to introduce yourself? I think I'm all set. Let's do it. I'm Alexander Chi, author of How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. Alexander Chi. Yeah. His newest book is an essay collection that's getting rave reviews, and almost half of it had been hidden away. Six of these essays were never published before they were in the book, and were in my files for decades like his essay titled 1989. I sent it out to a contest in 1990, 1991, and it won me a typewriter, but it was not published. So his work sat in a drawer, and time passed. He held a number of jobs. Bookseller, go-go boy, freelance makeup for uh, gay porn, yoga teacher, tarot card reader. Hang on, hang on. I love that job. Let's use that one to our advantage. Because I happen to have a tarot deck with me. And this deck is beautiful. And I'm dying to know how this interview is going to turn out, honestly. Shall we? Okay, I'm just going to pull one. All right, he's going to pull one card. Ooh, Father of Pentacles. Oh, okay. Is that a good one? That is a good one. Masculine energy that is comfortable, like, uh, manifesting things in the world. What a perfect card to get. A creator drawing a card that embodies creation. Cool, huh? One of the many reasons people write is to figure out their place in the world, and that can feel vital when you know you stand out. When you are a biracial, Asian-American queer growing up in Maine, which is the... (laughs) I think it's still the whitest state (laughs) in the country. The whitest place in the Um, world. You develop a sense of... Uh, feeling like a creature of science fiction. Mm. You know, people are always, uh, or were always, really surprised by me. And I really just wanted to blend in. I remember at one point meeting another biracial Asian-American queer uh, who had grown up in Portland 
Oregon. And he said, the other Portland. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, it would have been really different for you if you grew up where I did. Because you wouldn't have felt as weird. There were more Mm. of us. And that has stayed with me. You know, I think about it in relationship to, you know, when I was at uh, Kundiman, the Asian American Literary Organization's Literary Festival a year ago, I was really stunned to see how many Asian American writers were there. And uh, we were talking in the last moments of the conference. And I said to the group, I said, my first experience of being an Asian American writer was being alone. So... Mm. It's really intense to be here. From How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, page 71. I am proud for years of the way I looked real that night. I remember the men who thought I was a real woman, the straight guys in the cars whooping at me and their expressions when I said, thanks guys, my voice, my voice, and the change that rippled over their faces. You wanted me, I wanted to say. You might still want me. You know, the that validation that I experienced in drag wasn't... It was a complicated validation that had to do with being able to fit in on the street in a weird way. Growing up, I was so sure that I wasn't desirable to others that I became fascinated with people who had what... I guess we could call a sort of mainstream level of uh, beauty that, you know, could attract desire. And that, that to me looked like power. It took me a long time to realize that beautiful women, quote unquote, you know, uh, who were inhabiting those norms, that it was as much work for them as it was for me that night going into drag. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a cousin who she would get up at 5 a.m., to get ready for her 8 a.m. class. Uh Uh-uh. She would curl her hair, uh, do her makeup, all these things, and I would watch her do it because she was living with us for a while. And uh, sometimes I was watching her just because I was waiting for the bathroom. (laughs) But, (laughs) um, But she had this really, yeah, this really intense process of preparation before she would come downstairs and look like a pretty young woman, but kind of strangely ordinary. And that was her drag, as it were, you know. I think being introduced to that that night was also part of it, you know. Mm -hmm. So like, yes, you could pass for a desirable woman, quote unquote. And then also, this is how much work you would have to do. Mm -hmm. And then also learning that night as well, this is how you are exposed to violence that way. Wow. So it was a big education. Seriously. First time in drag, yeah. From How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, page 156. Roses, I discover in my research, appear delicate, but have adapted to most climates. They can be made to bloom all through the year until winter. The more they are cut back, the faster they grow and the stronger they are. My role models at last. It began as a gardening journal when I was planting roses in my garden in Brooklyn. And I, I still, have, still have 
the diaries are rather more, shall we say, uh, saucy. Let's just say. Mm. There's stuff about gardening, but of course it was my journal, so there are other things <laughs> in there. Um, perhaps I will Bring save me. them. Perhaps I will destroy them. Mm, Should have brought them <laughs> um, in. <laughs> and uh, it was my attempt to write about the process of teaching myself to grow roses. And I sort of backed into writing an essay that was actually also about teaching myself a writer's temperament in the process of trying to write a novel, teaching myself to do something that required me to commit to an aesthetic vision long-term that uh, came out of a moment of inspiration or imagination and, and that I had to research and plan and think through and I would make mistakes and have to learn from them. And, you know, all those are the kinds of things that you need to do when you write a novel also. But for me also, I had, I was coming out of this period of like having done so much work and not really knowing even maybe what it was all going to be for. And then gradually realizing that what I had done all that work for was to make a space where I could write the novel. This is one of those essays that I think it surprised me how much it connected for people. I remember being at the LA Times Festival of Books and this woman coming up to me kind of shaking to tell me how much she loved it and thanking me profusely. And I I thought, oh, <laughs> you know, like you've had a very you've had a very intense experience of this. And so I, I actually said to her, I said, do you mind me asking, like, uh, what, what was it that you connected to in this so intensely? And she said, it's about, uh, you know, it's an essay about becoming. And I thought, oh, this, this is true. the question that this essay collection was answering for you? So I guess in some ways the, the question to myself was what would a book of essays look like mm -hmm. for me? What would I put in? What would I not put in? And the more that I began to do it I started to, th to jokingly call the book Everything Bad That Happened to Me you know, which uh, it's not really true, but it's, it's connected to a moment in the collection, one of the essays where when I'm writing the first novel, the, the agent that I had at the time, who was not this agent, um, I had sent her the first 135 pages and she had said, I mean, the writing's good. A lot of people are going to find it kind of hokey. It's going to be hard for them to believe that this many bad things happen to one person. Fired. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, yes, my life has seemed improbable to me at times. Um, but I remember thinking like, oh, I, I guess I can't talk about all of it. And maybe the answer to the question was, I can talk about all of it. Or at least 
all of these things together. And maybe, so maybe the question was, can you, can you talk about all of it? So I've had the situation, and maybe this will be familiar to you, where I'm reading something and all of a sudden I find myself crying or about to cry. And, and before that, I thought, you know, that I had totally processed all of that. I could just read it out loud. It was going to be great. And, and then suddenly, tears. And I think that's why we read that peculiar alchemy where it turns out maybe you aren't ever on some kind of progressive linear path, but actually that you make these returns, uh, that the things that you think you have dealt with are just kind of hanging out still, but in a different way. short break. When we come back, Alex revisits his long and winding professional life and has an awkward conversation about money. Stick around. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern, here with Alexander Chi, author of How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. As a reader of this book, you can't help but be struck by how many jobs Alex has had. Yes, yes, I'm sure you, dear reader, have had your share. But have you been a... Parking lot attendant, CVS cashier, cashier at a fast food seafood restaurant, pizza prep guy and pizza delivery, sandwich boy, I guess. I would make grinders in the morning. That takes us through college. (laughs) Um, Bookseller, go-go boy, freelance makeup, cater waiter, Italian restaurant waiter, steakhouse waiter, yoga teacher, tarot card reader, transcriber, magazine editor, instructor in graduate school, freelance writer. (laughs) (laughs) And then tenured professor. I feel like we should have like confetti and balloons coming out at that one. Um, Wow, that's an amazing list. Thanks. I think I probably, They're probably have more. forgotten a few things, but yeah, that's basically... We'll put it on the website. Right. <clears throat> you speak very openly about money in the book, and I think in life as well. Tell me why you feel this is so important. Well, there's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of way in which when you don't talk about the money, people don't know what they might need to know about uh, how they might handle themselves, you know? So like, you know, telling, telling people about what you make in a workplace situation might be uncomfortable, but it also might allow, say, a woman colleague of the same rank to realize that she's not getting paid as much mm-hmm. and to negotiate differently as a result. Um, and for you to support her in that, uh, which is something that happened, for example. Um, can you give the, tell the story of what happened? Well, I probably can't give all the details, but basically like, you know, a colleague and I had both gotten raises and I mentioned how much my raise had been and it was more than her raise had been. Mm-hmm. And both of us had had fantastic years and, uh, I could see she was 
I've ended in shock. And, you know, some of these processes that are, like, when you're in academia, for example, there's all these ways in which, like, uh, all the things that you publish and all the places that you speak in a year, uh, you submit a list of those every year, and then they decide your race based on that because of your progress as an intellectual. Oh, my God. I would never get out of bed. <laughs> but this is, you know, this is a record keeping that then you, to do that, you have to keep your CV updated. And then you later submit that for promotion. But this is the kind of thing that like also, if you don't come up through the tenure system, if you've just been a visiting writer out in the cold, you know, like avoiding the meetings where these kinds of things are discussed, no one's told you them. And right. so when suddenly you are tenured, you, nobody's had those conversations with you and you need to have those conversations with people. From how to write an autobiographical novel, page 103. I did not feel like a New York writer, despite being there and writing. And worse, I had to work a lot to afford New York. My bookstore salary was so low, I sometimes had to choose between taking the subway and eating. A subway token cost as much as a bagel or slice of cheese pizza, and so it was always a question of which would win. Some of my friends from college, whom I would see periodically, proceeded with a self-assurance that I didn't feel into careers that seemed beyond reach. People seem to admire writers, and yet we're paid so little. <laughs> Why is that? I remember I did an article about plant theft. Mm-hmm. And... Plant theft is something that is really common because people love plants, but also feel like they shouldn't really have to pay for them. Huh. <laughs> and so they steal them all the time. They will like drive up to uh, a lilac bush in bloom and just cut some off and feel they're entitled to it because they saw it, you know. And I, I do think there's a way in which people treat writing a lot like plants. So... um I remember I told my grandfather about writing and he, he was like, I understand you're a poet. Uh, you'll be very poor, but very happy. And then he slapped his knee and laughed like it was the most hilarious joke. <laughs> and I was like, why? wait, why are you laughing? You know, but I have been happy. Well, thank you, Alex. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for having me on. Alexander Chi, author of How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. It's published by Mariner Books, and it's available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall and happy as a poet. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo Friedlander is Loud Tree's co-founder and editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com and please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. That is one of the best ways for other readers to find out about Bookable. If there's anything I've learned about Amanda Stern, it's that if she asks you to do something, you better well go. (laughs) She is not playing around. Yeah, I don't mess. Thanks for coming on the show. Should we pull one last tarot to see how we did? So, is that not how it works? <laughs> we can. We can definitely do that. 
And if you want to see this magical reading... Oh, there's already a card underneath it. A <gasps> secret card, the magician. Check us out on Instagram. We're at BookablePod. This is Bookable.